He's been advisor to Presidents Clinton and Trump. And now, he's here to advise us all. Dick Morris is on 77 WABC. Happy birthday, America. Happy birthday. Is it Independence Day? I don't think we're independent. Uh, I think it's no longer the British we need to be afraid of. But we used to be independent of foreign oil. Now we're not. We're totally dependent. We used to not depend upon the Arabs. We used to, meaning under Donald Trump, not depend on the Arabs for our oil and our gas. Now we do. We used to be independent in spirit and intellectually, now we're dominated by Europe and by European thinking. But the biggest threat to our day, to our independence is China. We have exchanged dependence on the Arab sheiks for dependence on the mandarins in Beijing. When we want to use renewable energy fuels that Biden talks about and touts, we have to realize that it means that we need rare earth minerals that make it possible to power our solar and our wind energy. And the rare earth minerals come from China. They produce 80% of them in the world. So we're totally dependent on China for our car batteries, for our our iPhones, for our computers, for our missile guidance systems, for our GPS systems, totally dependent on rare earth minerals. Every computer we have could not operate without them, and China controls 80% of them. We used to have a monopoly of them until about the early 1980s. And what happened was that the EPA, not the EPA, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, NARC, said that because rare earth minerals were found next to uranium deposits for the most part, and the uranium was radioactive, but the rare earth minerals were not, that they would regulate rare earth minerals just as they regulate radioactive material like uranium. Why? Because they decided it was there. Because they can. They can, just because (laughs) it appears next to them, and they thought that that would justify it. So immediately, all of the small American companies that mined and produced rare earth minerals found themselves subject to a whole list of regulations, labor regulations, wage regulations, disclosure, uh, uh, getting rid of waste regulations. Mm, Money. A a huge amount. And it was just too big a financial burden. Mm. They couldn't meet it. And they began to close down one after the other. And as soon as we closed them down, China opened them up. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission had nothing to do with China because it's not a member of the of the uh, international regulatory body about nuclear weapons. And China could tell them to go get lost. <laughs> I didn't pay any attention to those regs. And the very scientists and geologists and engineers who set up a rare earth mineral industry moved to China and help China acquire its monopoly in that area. So the entire medical imaging industry, for example, CAT scans, uh, all the MRIs. MRIs, all the stuff we get used to when we're in our 70s, uh, that all moved to China. And, uh, and so did the capacity to power every form of modern electronics. China got control of it. Now, Trump did his best to try to increase America's power in that. What he did was he required the Defense Department to only buy from U.S. rare earth minerals, and that revivified the industry and gave it about a 40% growth rate over the last two years. Wow. But China still runs the show, mm-hmm. and and we have lost our independence there. 
And there's another threat to our independence looming from China. China wants to subject the world to the same the same dominance over thinking that they have in China, the same techniques they use to control their own population they're using to try to control us and the rest of the world. Not secret police, not gulags. That's all old. That's all yesterday. <laughs> Tomorrow is that the Chinese Communist Party monitors every Internet use by every person in China. Every time you click, the Chinese Communist Party monitors it. And they go through your clicks to find out if any of them are to anti-government sites or to newspapers or magazines you shouldn't be reading or to uh, websites that reflect impartial treatments of the news or impartial news from the West. And if you log on to those sites, your political reliability score, PRS, which is kind of like a credit rating, drops. And China maintains a political reliability score on each of its 1.3 billion people. And the ability to get good jobs, to get promoted, to board a train, to board an airplane is entirely dependent upon their political reliability score. Unbelievable. And what they want to do is to do this in the U.S. and the rest of the world. The other countries of the world don't have to agree to it. It can just do it by getting its 5G software into phones and computers in the West so that that software, which is made by Huawei, a major Chinese company affiliated with the military, can report to Beijing what you're clicking on, just like you do if you live in China. And then Beijing can develop a file on each of the people on Earth with a political reliability score. And then it can enforce that because China is a significant shareholder in 2,400 major American companies. For example, you go to the movies, AMC Entertainment that owns all the movie theaters is controlled by China. Buy Ham, Smithfield Ham and Bacon is owned by China. I get a PC from IBM, the PC division of IBM is controlled by China. China controls such a vast swath of American industry and American business that it can enforce its political reliability score by stopping you from getting promoted, stopping you from getting a good job, and doing all the stuff they do to their own people in China. How are they going to do it here? Well, you work for Smithfield Ham. uh, You're an executive there. Uh, You do a lot of anti-Chinese tweets. China monitors that. It gets a hold of the guy who runs Smithfield Ham and says, hey, I'm your majority shareholder. I want you to fire Doug DePiro. Wow. He's not any good. And they'll have to. I'm probably not good at that job anyway. Yeah, well, you're good at hamming things up. You're the secret agent, man. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. And he can, they can do that. And, uh, and it is terrible that they're looking at it. Wow, that's fascism, the epitome, the... It is. It's George Orwell personified. They bypass the government. They don't use the secret police. They just use military power, Uh, intellectual power and vocational power to control you. And it's a hit. It's a real part of their agenda of taking over these companies and developing large minority shareholder positions in these companies. A lot of the news organs, a lot of the major companies in the United States. Now, Trump had the daughter and founder of Huawei, the daughter of the founder and top executive in it, arrested. Uh, She was hiding her dealings with Iran, and she was traveling in Canada, and Trump had her arrested because she was indicted in the U.S. for dealing with Iran in violation of our sanctions. Good. Good for her. Trump locked her up, and then, like clockwork, when he took office, Biden let her go. Why would he do that? Because he's bought and paid for by the Chinese. There you go. Uh, the same damn thing. The, 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 his being owned by China is a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> and we're going to see it in, in, in tremendous clarity when he goes ahead and uh, invades Taiwan. Now, I want to introduce my colleague here, Doug DePiro. Yeah, that's 
That's him. Doug is a renaissance man. In his own description, a super genius. <laughs> <laughs> but more like Wildy e. Coyote, you know, gets hit with the anvil. And <laughs> okay. He's, he's, he builds and he uh, designs uh, mur- classic cars and motorcycles. Uh, he paints wall murals for the rich and famous and also for me. Well, you're rich and famous, aren't you? Yeah, well, I'm famous. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> he does uh, photorealism portraits of women with and without clothing, children. Yes. Horses and most of all dogs. Oh, puppy dogs! Puppy dogs! But more than that, he's my longtime, irreplaceable and irrepressible friend. Um, so it's a pleasure to be here with Doug DePere. Honor to be with you, Dick Morris. Yesterday, somebody called and said, "I don't recognize. I don't know. Forgot the name of your sidekick." And I said, "Doug's sidekick is named Dick Morris." <laughs> that was good. Psychic. Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's Sunday, and you know what that means. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. In 1972 and 73, the uh, Nixon administration passed the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. He doesn't get any credit for it, but the entire environmental movement was started legislatively by Richard Nixon. I didn't know that. And and the Clean Air and the Clean Water Act are among the most successful pieces of legislation in American history. Uh, It cleaned up the waterways of this country unbelievably. A couple of years ago, my sister-in-law swam in the Hudson River as part of a triathlon where you have to swim a mile and bike and run. And she still has 10 toes and 10 <laughs> fingers, and right. like two arms and two legs. When I was growing up, it was dirty. Yeah. And, I, I um, swam in that thing. And it, it's amazing how the waterways of this country have been cleaned up and the air has been cleaned up. It's great. Um, now, this Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act dealt with very specific pollutions, uh, they spoke about par- limiting particulate emissions. They spoke about sulfur dioxide, nitrous oxides, all of the pollutants that scientists tell us are gr- slowly killing us. And they reduced the level of those pollutants to the point where our air is so much cleaner than it ever was. Um, even in places like Los Angeles where it's smog, uh, the, the air is still much cleaner in New York. Uh, with all of its traffic and all of its people, it is incredibly clean. But lately, the EPA under Obama and now under Biden has attempted to expand the definition of pollution to include carbon dioxide. <laughs> you and I breathe out carbon dioxide. Right. Plants breathe in carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. The fundamental transaction that permits life on our planet is that we breathe in oxygen, we breathe out carbon dioxide. Plants breathe in carbon dioxide and breathe out oxygen. Amazing, isn't it? And that's how the planet stays alive. But the EPA says, nope, carbon dioxide is a pollution, it's a pollutant, because the theory is that the carbon traps greenhouse gases on Earth and causes climate change and global warming, and they want to regulate carbon dioxide. And the specific proposal was to basically ban coal in the United States, uh, stop plants from using coal to generate electricity. And they set up a national plan to require every electric generating plant to phase out coal over a number of years and replace it either with natural gas or with renewable sources. And the coal industry sued and said, hey, wait a minute, nothing in the uh, statute, nothing in the clean air statute even mentions the word carbon. Uh, we're not a pollutant. How did the EPA decide we are? And the EPA said, well, the Clean Air Act gives us authorization to enact regulations to promote air quality. So the West state of West Virginia sued the EPA and made its way up to the Supreme Court torturously over many years. And last week, Friday, the Supreme Court made a decision. And it is one of the most important decisions in American history. If I were to rank the top 20 Supreme Court cases, the Dred Scott decision, Brown v. Board of Education, uh, the search and seizure stuff, uh, the uh, uh, Miranda decision, 
I would put right up there this EPA case. It's more important than the abortion decision. It's more important than the uh, stop and fr- the uh, concealed carry decision. Mm-hmm. Because what it says is that the, the immediate impact is it says you can't regulate carbon because it doesn't show up in the statute. And your ability to regulate pollutants is entirely based on that 1972-73 Clean Air Act. And if it's not in there, you can't do it. But the long imp- longer-term implication of it is that you can't pass the laws. You can't decide what to do for the country. You are a regulatory agency appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, but not elected by anybody. And therefore, you do not have the power or the authority to replace Congress in making laws. And only Congress has that power. And that means that we are not going to go down the path of Europe where everything is controlled by the bureaucracy. In the European Union, the Congress, the Parliament is pathetic. They have no power at all. They're a decorative body. What they basically are is that they pay their members well and they give them a nice big fat expense account. They make about a quarter of a million dollars a year, including expense accounts, and they buy off all the politicians in Europe. And everybody wants to be a member of the European Parliament. Oh, sure, I do too. Not so they can do anything, just so they can show up in Strasbourg every Find week, a motorcycle. every month, and pick up their paycheck. Huh. And uh, the but the laws are made by the commissions, these appointed commissions that run the EU. Who appoints them? The Council of Ministers, which is all the prime ministers of Europe put together. But in practice, they don't appoint them. There's a bureaucrat that appoints the bureaucrat that appoints the bureaucrat. And they run Europe. They make the decision about everything in Europe. And there's no appeal to any elected body. In a sense, what's happened in Europe is that it, you know, I I helped run the Brexit campaign. So I know all about this and have opposed it vigorously, kept it away from the U.K. Is that the aristocracy used to run Europe you know, Louis the Fourteenth and his acolytes, and it still does. But they don't call them the aristocracy. They're not inherited like the noblemen were. Mm-hmm. Um, they are elite, they have money, and they have prestige, and they get into all the top schools. Most people don't. They get the education at Oxford, Cambridge, the Sorbonne, or other top universities. And they are the only people that the European Commission hires to man the bureaucracy. So it really is like an inherited nobility. Mm -hmm. And we were going down that road. In his farewell address in 1960, Eisenhower, leaving office as president, warned about being governed by a, quote, techno-bureaucratic elite uh, that would erode our freedom and that would make decisions for us, allegedly in our best interest. Under the theory that we're stupid and they're smart and they'll tell us what to do. They know best. And so the EPA, using that mandate, decided to crack down on carbon dioxide and a whole range of things that really weren't pollutants. Every breath you take, actually, every breath you exhale, <laughs> don't exhale. Right, right. Don't you know, it's the opposite of oh, like it was with Bill Clinton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't inhale. You can't exhale because <laughs> you're pollution. You're, you're killing the planet oh, with each breath. That'll work. And, um, Maybe his wife shouldn't exhale. Justice uh, Gorsuch wrote the opinion on this. And it, well, Roberts did, but Gorsuch's concurrence with Alito joining with him gave him the majority and it really explains the bureaucracy and the hold it has on a society and how it has to be broken for democracy to be able to function. So this is one of the absolutely most important decisions ever in the, in the history of this country. Um, I believe that the serious threat to our liberties is not primarily Vladimir Putin or even China. We'll overcome those. We're strong and we'll... We're getting stronger, and if we bring Trump back, we'll we'll free ourselves of when the Middles thing. Yeah, when we bring when him we back. Yeah. Um, but uh, 
but the takeover of the bureaucracy, the domination of big tech, big bureaucracy, and big corporations is so pervasive and so anti-democratic, uh, and it needs to be needed to be stopped, and this decision really effectively does it. Let's go to, oh, Judith is on the phone. Hello, hey, from Judith. Brooklyn. Hey, Judith. What's up? Hey. Oh, my goodness. Give me a moment. I'll take you off the speaker, guys. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, by the way, Doug, yes. I could think of a few others not that, that don't have to exhale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, listen. Hildebeast. So, um, yeah. Okay. So, listen, um, Dick, hi. How are you? I'm doing great. Listen, when, oh, okay. Yes, you're terrific. I love all your explanations. You're so smart. Oh, so smart. You. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Did you send um, the, the flowers? No. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, Dick, when two people have an argument or a debate, okay, and if both of them have sincere interest, like real pure sincere interest in getting to the truth, that's a good thing, right? Yeah. So, what could have been what could have been an excellent January sixth investigation, like sincerely searching for the whole truth, okay, turned into a January sixth smearings. Just like the Kavanaugh smearings, just yeah. like the Donald Trump smearings, you know, where clearly it proves that this committee is so one-sided, no counter witnesses at all. Yep. They are clearly afraid of the truth, and the media doesn't even question this. It's just so mind-boggling to me. Judith, I think that the important thing about the committee is to understand its ulterior purpose. There is a law, the 14th Amendment, that was passed after the Civil War when the states that got readmitted to the Union took all the Confederate leaders and elected them to Congress and the Senate, the head of the Ku Klux Klan came back as a as a senator. Uh, the top General Beauregard, a major Confederate general, was elected to Congress. And the people that ran Congress during the Civil War, the radical Republicans, were furious. And they, in the 14th Amendment, they included a provision that barred anyone that was an insurrection against the United States from serving in public office and was designed to keep the Confederate generals out. Now the left is trying to say that by fomenting the riot on January 11th, January 6th, Donald Trump led an insurrection against the American government ah, so the and 14th. is barred by the 14th Amendment mm. from running for president again. Now it's not going to work and the courts aren't going to sustain it. But they want, but they're trying to make that case. And that's what the January 6th Commission is all about. That committee is an effort to try to frame Trump so that he's responsible for the insurrection. Now, of course, forget that it was not an insurrection. You can't have one without guns. And the mention of guns that that woman Hutchison talked about was ridiculous. So she said, I heard and I heard and I heard from a friend that there were people who were seen, I'm told, were having AR-40s, AR-15s. But they didn't. There was no reports of them, no live witnesses. So this is all an effort to take a demonstration that got out of hand and blame it on Trump to try to bar him from public office, and that's even worse. Let's go to Larry in Brooklyn. Hey, Larry. That was a great insight, Dick. Yeah, yeah. Hi, Dick. Uh, you know, on earlier on the Janine Piero show, he, uh, she was interviewing a, uh, a sheriff about the fentanyl, about the 150 pills of fentanyl, and she, he wants she wants to know what's no he, he wants to know what's going on really with the border. Why are they doing this? And he said, well, ostensibly it looks like they want more voters, but he but he believes it's because they want to do everything opposite Trump did to make a point. Now. Yeah. What I want to what I want to ask you is this this whole the whole the whole withdrawal from Afghanistan in light of what you said about China it's seeming more and more obvious that uh, that Biden did it in order to allow China to take over the lithium fields in Afghanistan now this this what he did was he he enslaved well, yeah. I, I need to cut you off because we're we're up against a break you're right uh, it was part of the motivation I don't think Joe Biden has ever heard of lithium. I don't think he knows anything about rare earth minerals. But I do believe that China does and that China was very focused on taking over in Afghanistan in order to let this happen. And I think they worked with the Taliban to try to help the Taliban drive the United States out. 
And certainly the byproduct of this was that, uh, that China developed a good source of rare earth minerals. But keep it in perspective. We have more than enough rare earth minerals to bury the whole world. We just aren't allowed to mine it because our nuclear regulatory commission, the same kind of stuff we just talked about, is basically artificially regulating it. How do we change that? What, what do we well, have to do? What Trump did do and started to do before Biden turned it around was to direct that none of this enforcement by the NRCC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, be directed at rare earth minerals, that uh, that this is not something within the purview of that agency, and it shouldn't be. There's no, there's no way a rare earth mineral has anything to do with a nuclear reaction. Right. It's not radioactive. Uh-huh. It's not part of it. So I think we can do that. Um, but you had made an earlier point that I thought was good, um, um, well, Larry from ra- Brooklyn, yeah. The rare earth. Yeah, I forget what it was, but okay, good, and thank you for calling. Hi, it's Lou Dobbs for Priority Gold, America's precious metals dealer. These are volatile times with high inflation, soaring debt, wars on multiple continents, and rising financial stress. Central banks are buying gold to diversify their reserves, so are many Americans. Call Priority Gold and find out how precious metals can help you diversify your portfolio. They're highly rated and happy to help. Call 1-866-303-6357 or get a free gold guide at PriorityGoldGuide.com. That's Priority PriorityGoldGuide.com. Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's Sunday, and you know what that means. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. You've heard him, I've heard him, we all talk to him. Lots of people come over to me all the time. And say, look, I like what Donald Trump did as president. I think he was a good president, but uh, and I, I and I don't like what Biden is doing. But can Trump please step aside and let somebody else run, somebody else without his negative, somebody else without the abrasive personality, somebody no. else without the high negative ratings? And my answer to that is absolutely, emphatically not. No. Only Donald Trump can save us from Biden and the Democrats. And I, I wrote a new book that's coming out a week from Tuesday called The Return, yes. Donald Trump's Incredible Comeback in 2024. And I believe, and I write in the book, that only Donald Trump can do this. First of all, let me just discuss the dynamics of the Trump candidacy. Donald Trump can answer a question that nobody else can answer. Whenever you run a negative against somebody, you say, you did this, you let crime go up, you let inflation happen, you raised gas prices, and I won't. The comeback is, how do we know you won't? How do we know you're not just BSing? How do we know you're not just flapping your mouth? How do we know that you can actually do what you say? Check my report card. And only Donald Trump can give a three-word answer. I did it. I did it. How do you know I'm going to close the border? I did. How do you know I'm going to kill inflation? I did. How do you know that I'm going to be able to keep gas under $5 a gallon? I did. How do you know that I'm going to be able to be effective in strengthening Americans, standing up to Putin, and stopping him from doing this stuff? I did. And that's the most important answer you can give in politics. And only Donald Trump can give that answer. Viewed against the background of Trump's record, Biden's record looks looks horrible. In fact, I've said that Joe Biden is the frame around the portrait of Donald Trump that makes him look good. <laughs> A lot of people are saying, you know, I was had my problems with Trump. He was combative, contentious. Everything was always drama. Everything was always a fight. But now that I look at what's happened since he left office and look at what Biden's doing, I realize that I really miss Donald Trump and I really want him to come back. And that's the key to Trump's appeal. It's very important that we realize that only a candidate that can definitively and decisively answer the question, what are you going to do about this stuff? Uh, And the answer is, I did it, I controlled it when I was president, and I can do it again. You have to realize that 
all of the negatives about Donald Trump are really the reason why he's effective. If right. you, if if you eliminate the arrogance, the combativeness, the assertiveness, the outspokenness, you eliminate the effectiveness. Why does North Korea not fire missiles during the Trump presidency? And the second Trump left office, they begin testing missiles and bombs again. Because Kim Jong-un said, I want to warn the United States that I have a button. I could push the button and blow up the world. And Donald Trump came back and said, my message to Kim is, I have a bigger button than you do. <laughs> That's so Trump. Totally intimidated That's Kim. so Donald no Trump. No other president would ever say something like that. But <laughs> well, he totally forced them to back down. Rocket man. Yeah, by talking in a way that nobody else does. You know why, Dick? He built buildings all his life in New York City with tough guys and teams. And that's how he was. Listen, you can't get it done, you're fired. Get the other guy. And that's what he does. And he still talks like that. Yeah. People don't like that. That's what I like about him. And I think that we have to realize that Trump, Trump's negatives are his positives. How did Donald Trump control the Republican Party in the Senate? Look at what Biden's doing. He can't control anything. Mansion and cinema running rings around. <laughs> uh, he's got fifty-one votes. He can't pass anything, and uh, and and his entire program is dropped dead. Why did that not happen to Donald Trump? Well, let me tell you the saga of of uh, Flake, Jeff Flake, the senator from Arizona, and um, the senator from Tennessee. Uh, I'll come up with the name in a minute, and. What he did with those guys was to call – they were opposing him. They were opposing his program. And he called them out in an aggressive, personal way. He said that Jeff Flake was Mr. Flake, and he he really came down on them hard. He said that the senator from Tennessee had advocated the Iran deal and let it be passed and that he couldn't get elected dog catcher in Tennessee. And he drove those two guys out of politics. He obsessed on them so much, beating the hell out of them, that they could not run again. They both withdrew. They both left politics. And they no longer attend the Republican caucus in the Senate. But they're there. The ghosts of them are walking the hallways because the senators see what happened to those guys who stood up to Trump. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they're not here anymore. They're gone. And uh, and to reign of terror, and he terrorized the Republican Party into line. Good. So nobody would object to what he was doing. Nobody would stop him from what he was doing, and he could get stuff done on a level that other presidents can't. And a less ruthless president, a less aggressive president, would not be able to do that. Lyndon Johnson could do it. He had a memory a mile long. If anybody dissed him. Uh, They came in uh, three years later with a request for some constituent to get a flag that flew over the Capitol (laughs) uh, or some constituent wanted his passport expedited. Uh, Johnson would say, go to hell. You opposed me back three years ago when I did this. You did that. And that's the way Trump is. And he has awesome. He has a long memory and he's willing to really act against people that stop him. And as a result, nobody tries. And that power, that incredible ability, is so unique to Donald Trump and so valuable to the United States. The other thing that's crucial about Trump is that he discovered a group of Americans that nobody had ever paid any attention to. The working class, high school educated American men and women, not college. They don't live in bi-coastal. They don't live in L.A. or New York. They're in what is derisively called flyover country. Right. And that's exactly the attitude that the politicians have toward them. Hillary called them deplorables. Yeah. Obama said they cling to their Bibles and their guns because of their frustrations with trade and their fear of people that don't look like they do. And that was the official rap of the establishment about the, about these people. And these folks are 36% of America. 18% of them are men, 18% are women, half men, half women, 18% of the vote. And this 36% was the group that Trump talked to 
first time anyone had ever done that. He spoke their language. He was blunt. He was outspoken, not diplomatic, uh, said it like it was, and really spoke about their need to be protected against immigrants who would drive down their wages and take away their jobs, against Chinese imports that would undercut the sales of their factories and their jobs would close down, uh, against the bureaucrats that wanted to inoculate them and indoctrinate their kids and, and run their lives. And Donald Trump stood up against them in a way nobody has. And his ability to communicate with those voters, going beyond the BS of typical politicians, is unique. Nobody else has it. No other politician in America can do that. And when you, people have a fantasy of, say, DeSantis or somebody else, well, that's fine. Those guys will have their time. Right. But they, they can't do it now. And if you think that they can mobilize the blue-collar constituency that Donald Trump mobilized, you, you're, kidding, you're kidding yourself. This is a group of folks that were alienated. They never voted. They never showed up. You know them. You've met them. Uh, the guys who put gas in your car uh, when, you, when, you, when you can do it. When you can afford <laughs> when you it. can afford it. Uh, <laughs> That's they, not funny. They're, they're, they're people who are not part of the process. They don't listen to anyone. They don't talk to anyone. They don't read anything. And they are inaccessible. But Donald Trump accessed them and mobilized them and turned them into a strong and viable political force, and nobody else can do that. The other thing he did was he went to the this radio. This is in your book. A lot of this stuff is Yeah, this book. is all in my book. Yeah. Thank you, Doug. Um, my book is called The Return, The Big Comeback of Donald Trump in 2024. And it's a very thorough, just gives you a very thorough understanding of what happened in the 2020 campaign, what went wrong, and how we can win it again. But a key element in this is that only Donald Trump can do it. Right now in the polling, he's at 55% of the vote in the Republican primary. DeSantis is at 20, and everybody else is less. Uh, Trump is the Republican nominee next time, and Trump will be the next president of the United States. Can't wait. Now... I was secret when I was working for Trump. When I volunteered to come into his campaign in, in April of 2020, he and I both agreed, he agreed, and I requested that I be anonymous, that I not be known. Because, uh, you know, I'd been through the mill when I was well-known working for Clinton, and I had no desire to go through that again. And he had no desire to have to, you know, defend somebody else in his administration. So I told him two rules. One, don't pay me. And number two, don't quote me or mention me. Don't pay me was because Donald Trump never pays anybody. <laughs> he, he, he pretends to. They end up suing him. <laughs> but I didn't want to be on his SHIT list. <laughs> I think spelling it is just as bad as just saying as bad, it. I don't, I don't know, I'm not sure. See if my producers yeah, yeah, object. That's it. <laughs> but I wasn't going to alienate him by charging him money. No. So nobody knew I was there. There was never a news article. There were nine people in addition to the president that knew that I was working in the campaign. And most of them only found out in the last couple of weeks before Election Day. And I had been working with them closely until then. Speaking but you were like him, the secret agent man. Speaking <laughs> to him pretty much every night. There's a man who leads a life of danger. Dick Morris. To everyone he meets, he stays a stranger. Dick Morris. With every move he makes, another chance he takes. Odds are he won't live to see tomorrow. Secret agent man, secret agent man. Just don't come across with that secret agent <laughs> and if, guy. And if you don't believe... You that, don't wear enough black. And if you don't believe that Washington is a dangerous place <laughs> where you're subject to all of those risks, you haven't read a newspaper lately. <laughs> or any of your books. Yeah. So, um, so I did, and it was an absolute joy. He and I spoke constantly. That's great. And I talk about the relationship in my book. Uh, my father was his lawyer, and um, Trump Tower was built largely because my father 
did the legal work and got the thing approved. And um, Trump would always come over to me when we were having dinner in Mar-a-Lago. He would say, your father, Gene Morris, was the best real estate lawyer I ever had. And then because he was Donald Trump, he turned to me and said, he was nothing like you. He wasn't political. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you. Forget it. Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's Sunday, and you know what that means. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. You know, Dick, I think the, the next... Um, Promo for you should be secret agent man. Yeah, or when we come into the show, yeah. it's just to be secret. Hey. I like clowns to the left of me because you're sitting to the left of me. <laughs> I'm a clown, uh, that's yeah. for sure. So um, my relationship with Trump that I explain in the book uh, really began because, as I said, my father was his lawyer. My father had been his his father's lawyer, Fred Trump. And then when Fred passed things on to Donald, my father stayed there and uh, was Donald's main real estate attorney for about 15 years. Um, and the other relationship that was important is Trump had a mentor who really taught him everything he knows about politics, guided him through it, and helped him navigate the politics of New York City in getting his stuff approved, and that was Roy Cohn. Uh, Roy was the chief counsel to the McCarthy Committee investigating communists and got a very bad reputation doing that, and alienated Bobby Kennedy. And when Bobby Kennedy became attorney general, he indicted Roy, not once but three times. Wow. And Roy wouldn't hire a lawyer. He represented himself, and he got acquitted three times. And that made his reputation. He was very famous. He had all the great clients in the world. Onassis was his client. Rupert Murdoch was his client. The Archdiocese was his client. And um, he is my first cousin once removed, and he was very close to my father. And the trio, my father, Gene Morris, Trump, and Roy Cohn, were kind of an item in New York development circles. Um, my, My father would do the legal work, Roy would arrange the politics, and Trump would arrange the money. So so there's a saying in Yiddish, mishpucha, which means family, but not necessarily blood family. And Mm -hmm. Trump and I have a basically mishpucha. I met him in my early 20s when Eileen and I had dinner with with him and with Ivanka, Ivana, at the time uh, at my parents' apartment. Ivanka. You're right with Ivanka. No, Ivana. The mother is Ivana. The daughter is Ivanka. I don't know. Um, so, uh, So it was a very close friendship. Uh, I've had some funny stories about that. Once I was having lunch at the Four Seasons restaurant <laughs> at, in Manhattan, and you know, fancy restaurant. I was romancing a client or a potential client who I wanted to get to hire me, a guy named Khan, K-A-N, who was running for Prime Minister of Japan. He ultimately he won, by the way. And um, I was having lunch with him, and I got up to go to the bathroom, and I saw five or six tables away Donald Trump was having lunch. So I passed by the table and said hi to him, and he said, Dick Morris, Dick Morris, Dick Morris, I haven't seen you in so long. How's your dad? How's your mom? How are things doing? And then he said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm having lunch with a guy who's running for prime minister of Japan. And Trump said, you're pitching him for business? And I said, yeah. I said, in fact, in fact, Mr. Trump, nobody ever called him Donald. If you uh, get a moment, could you come over to my table and make a fuss? (laughs) And he smiled and he said, yeah, sure. (laughs) So I went back to my table and he came over and he said, Dick, Dick Morris, how are you? (laughs) My God, I haven't seen you in years. How's your mom? How's your dad? How's everything? So what are you doing here? And I said, and who's your friend? And I introduced him to Khan. In Japan, you say San, which is Mr. So Khan San. And, uh, And Trump said, you're thinking of running, you're going to run for prime minister. You're thinking of hiring him. Let me tell you something. If you hire this guy, he never loses. <laughs> never, never loses. He never loses. You hire him, you are as good as elected. And I got the client. <laughs> That's so funny. That's so great. It was so great. Uh, but go back to why Donald Trump is necessary for America. And the book. Uh, 
and which is in the book. The book explains Amazing. what went wrong in the campaign, what went right, and how we can avoid the election being stolen again. Right. Next That's week on so the show, important. I'll talk about the stolen aspect. But Trump's ability to appeal to the Latino and Hispanic vote is, is probably his most important, lasting achievement as a politician uh, because it's a permanent repositioning, permanent. Uh, Hispanics and Latinos will no longer be the base of the Democratic Party. They will increasingly be the base of the Republican Party. And the fault line in our society is not going to be white or Anglo, black or white. It's going to be whether you wanted to be an American or you didn't. Right. If you were just born here, well, that's okay. We don't assume you wanted one way or the other. But if you picked up your butt and you risked your life and gave up your fortune and your family, your connections, your money, learned a new language, and came here, that was a statement you wanted to be an American. And Donald Trump understood that, and he understood that when the left goes around tearing down statues of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and, believe it or not, Abraham Lincoln and Theodore Roosevelt, that they're demeaning our heritage, demeaning our heroes, and that they're going to alienate the people who are here because they wanted to be here, because they migrated here. And um, and that, and he can go around and really appeal to them in a major way, and he did. And it is a fundamental repositioning of this country, that this country will never be the same politically because of that. We see all these illegal immigrants coming in the border, and we say, oh, my God, they're all going to vote Democrat. We'll be a Democrat Party country for the next hundred years. Nonsense. As they come over the border, they settle. After a while, they become uh, they, they try to become citizens. Then they get naturalized as citizens. Then they enroll. Then they register to vote. And by that time, the Republicans are ready. And the, our ability to win the Latino vote is huge. And it's entirely, I think, due to what Donald Trump did. And by the way, while we're talking about Mr. Trump's achievements, let's talk about three of them. Okay. Let's talk about the abortion decision. Let's talk about the concealed carry decision, and let's talk about the EPA decision I talked about at the start of the show. Those are Donald Trump's accomplishments, because without the three judges he appointed, they would never have passed. Aha. They never would have been approved by the Supreme Court. Those were six to three votes. Without Trump's three judges, they're three to three votes, and they don't pass. And if it weren't Trump, some liberal would have appointed some liberals, some squishy conservatives who wouldn't have had the guts to make the decision. And would have no more coal and the country would fall apart. And, and let's give Donald Trump credit for all of this. Let's go to Joe and Edison. Hey, Joe. Need to have you on five days a week. Oh, well, good. Good. Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. Dick, could you expand briefly on your thoughts of Ron DeSantis regarding the upcoming presidential election? Yeah. The rumblings that he's going to run, will he challenge Trump? It seems no. counterproductive. Will it be he's, a Trump-DeSantis ticket? What do, what do you feel? Well, he's not going to challenge Trump. Uh, there's a poll out conducted last week by McLaughlin, and Trump has 55% support in the Republican primary, and DeSantis has 20, and Cruz and everybody else is in single digits. Uh, he's not going to run. What he's doing is positioning himself for 28 mm. Uh, and, and he should run in 28, and he probably should be the nominee. DeSantis did something really important. He changed the job of governor. The job of governor was always kind of an administrative job, focusing on state laws, having nothing to do with important national policy. But he took issues like COVID and woke indoctrination in schools and stuff like that that fell within the purview of a governor's jurisdiction, but were really national issues. And he acted on them in a brilliant way. He seized the issues, and he really made them work. Uh, and that he deserves a vast amount of credit for it. It pales by comparison with Donald Trump's achievements, but but it was amazing that a governor was able to do that. He was great. And I love Ron DeSantis. But stay in your lane, buddy. He will. Uh, don't, don't go around saying you can challenge Trump because he can't. You can't access that blue-collar vote that Trump did. You can't get the votes of the Latinos the way Trump did. Your style is not Trump's style. 
And, uh, Close, but not Trump. Well, getting there. Yeah, he's getting there. In fact, his big influence is Donald Trump yeah, right. on DeSantis. Uh-huh. But uh, give me a break, guys. Stay within your own lane. I like that. Let's go to um, Russ in Milford, Connecticut. Hey, Russ. Hi, hi, Dick. You know, who would be a good VP candidate for Trump? Would it be Pompeo? Good, I, mean, I don't think he's going to run against Trump, naturally, because they, they have a good relationship, I think. A good VP candidate for Trump would be anybody that can get along with him. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think no, I mean, would. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. Anybody that can get along with him. Uh, the I amazing, can get along with him. The amazing thing about Pence is they got along with him for four years, and there was no fighting until Pence wouldn't stand up in Congress yeah. like he should have. But uh, After the election, you mean. Yeah, after the election. But... Uh, Trump, the, choosing, being Trump's vice president is a very personal job. It's like a marriage. And you can't just say, are oh, you qualified? Where are you from? What's your background? Mm-hmm. Do you get along with the guy? Uh, can, do you rub personalities the wrong way? And Trump is going to choose somebody that he can work with. I doubt it'll be DeSantis because I think Trump is bristling with DeSantis kind of letting his name be floated out there for president. He's not doing himself any good by doing that. So listen, I've spoken to you about my book, and uh, it comes out a week from Tuesday. But you can pre-order it now at Amazon.com. And I wish you would, because if you have enough people pre-order it, I open on the bestsellers list. My first day there in publication, I'm already a bestseller. And that means I get on discount ranks, ranks in bookstores, get promoted on Amazon. You know how when you buy a book on Amazon, it says, People who bought this also like and oh, yeah, they list yeah. other books. I get to be one of them. So please, pre-order my book, The Return, Trump's Big Comeback in 2024. Thank you, Dick. It's an honor. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 